Hey there, Business of Politics listeners. It's Eric Wilson. We're sharing something special with you today. Earlier this month, I was a guest on the Politico Deep Dive podcast to talk about how social media drives politics today. We got into the weeds on some of the strategy considerations that candidates and campaigns have to make when deciding how they'll engage, if at all, on a social media platform. I'm really grateful to the Politico team for letting me share this with you if you didn't get a chance to hear it already. Here's a fun story. I got off a flight. You know, you have a flight where you're like, you're hoping the Wi-Fi will work and it just doesn't. And you're like, oh gosh. And like, and on campaigns, that's horrible. And especially in like a, a role, like a campaign manager, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to miss? And I landed and I've got the Daily Beast texting me being like, why is Andrew texting about circumcision? The year is 2019. Zach Grauman is Andrew Yang's campaign manager. And he just got off a flight to find out his candidate, Andrew Yang, is going viral, but not the way his strategist had hoped. And I was like, why am I getting this text message right now? Like, Sam Simon's like, this is hilarious. I'm writing peace on it. And I was like, oh, man, I guess we're going with circumcision now. I'm Eugene Daniels, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Sometimes I think of something that is too good not to show the world. Like how great my nails are, or I guess my take on a policy or something. And I know that I'm definitely not alone. Sure, it's fun for the sugar rush of owning the libs or piling on to the latest snarky thing. And that's that's fine. Or have the urge to reply to a hot take that you just can't ignore. Yang was kind of famous for that, if you remember. And Andrew had replied like... And he does. He would often reply to people on uh, Twitter. And all the while, the social media machine keeps on moving, with old school media following not too far behind. There are journalists, opinion makers, influencers, and sort of the, the chattering class, the people who develop narratives. So it's important to make sure that your side of the story is at least present. For campaign insiders like Zach Grauman, this attention is crucial. The tactics you need to get attention that way are not the same tactics you need to impress the establishment and get them to line up behind you. Eric Wilson works inside GOP campaigns, and he says that in politics, sometimes social media can be more of a liability than an asset. You know, if you're a candidate and you have you have a really viral tweet, people don't know what district you're running for or what office you're seeking or anything about your campaign. So it is a cautionary tale, right? Social media has transformed pretty much every aspect of modern life, from the way we shop to the way we date to the way we get our news to the way American politics works. And while social media has reduced the power of the traditional gatekeepers who used to decide what's important and who gets to be heard, it's also provided new and more effective tools for those already behind the gates to stay in power, so long as they know how to pull the levers in the right way. Today, we're logging you into the minds of the strategists whose jobs it is to help candidates and politicians go viral. We had to make noise. We, we're competing in the attention economy. You're not just competing against Joe Biden. You're competing against Kim Kardashian and a Netflix special. And- or in some cases, save them from themselves. And so the lesson has to be, don't build your house on someone else's land, because there are a lot of campaigns who would be left out in the cold if Facebook or Twitter shut down tomorrow. As massively online as journalists and wonks and many politicians may be, one thing is still true. Twitter Twitter is not not 
reality. But it's still really, really helpful. Zach Stanton is Playbook's deputy editor and a hopeless Twitter addict. Zach, this story came from your brain, so tell me why. Well, for, first, I want to quibble with the word hopeless in that. Uh, <laughs> if you're an uh, addict on Twitter, as far as I'm concerned, you're hopeless. Fair, fair. I'll, I'll take it, I guess. You know, I first started thinking about this back in the 2020 campaign when after Kamala Harris's presidential campaign sort of imploded, there were a number of different postmortems about it. Mm-hmm. And many of them mentioned that some of her senior staff blamed other senior staff being too focused on what Twitter said and on what Twitter's reaction was to this or that in the campaign and didn't really realize that there was a disconnect between what happens in Twitter versus what happens in real life. And that comes at the exact same time as journalists are increasingly addicted to Twitter. As much as media types are glued to Twitter, what does it mean for people actually running for or serving in office? How, how much do they care about Twitter? Our first insider that we talked to didn't really mince words when I asked him a question that was just like that. It's top of mind for everyone. And I think the problem is you over-index for that. That's Eric Wilson. He's a GOP digital strategist, and I'm the managing partner of Startup Caucus. We're an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. He also picked up on my fondness for Twitter. You, you love Twitter, man. I, I do love Twitter. I'm an addict, unfortunately. Do you have uh, a Facebook account? I do have a Facebook account. Uh, See, I told you, you have a problem. You need some help. <laughs> <laughs> when you're advising a, a candidate or an organization, how cognizant are you of the fact that journalists seem to be kind of addicted to Twitter. The whole point of social media is that you don't need the gatekeepers of journalists or reporters. And, you know, anyone with a a camera and a microphone can broadcast their words. They don't need the FCC license. They don't need an editor. They don't need a publisher. And so that really has taken a lot of the power back. Uh, But I think a lot of candidates and operatives who still sort of came of age in the, the old way still like that third party validation that comes from talking to the media and, you know, sort of having their words reported on in a a publication. And so I would actually go the other way and say, worry less about what the reporters think uh, and more about how it's going to be received. So just one practical example here. When we are sort of writing a tweet, we, we look at, okay, here are the words and we'll pick it apart. What we don't think about is what's the tweet on top of it and what's the tweet below it, Mm. right? And that's really how most people are going to experience it. So if you're not standing out in a compelling way, you're going to get ignored. So I think a lot of people are really worried about controversy and someone will say I'm wrong on the internet. Mm. But what you should really be worried about is being ignored because that's more likely to happen. How do you think that that's driving the way that candidates talk without getting into like the specifics of this example in the Ohio Republican Senate primary right now? You have, for lack of a better term, sort of an arms race between a couple different candidates as to who can seem perhaps most Trumpy or most outlandish almost on Twitter. And that seems deliberate. They're trying to generate interaction. They're trying to generate attention. Does the idea that you're trying to get all this attention, does that change the way that candidates use the platform? Candidates have to optimize for a few different things, so so different audiences that they're they're talking to. We know that most voters are more active on Facebook. 
So what's happening on Twitter is primarily performative for either journalists, influencers, opinion makers, and, you know, other elected officials that, that you may need to win over or, or politicians. In order to break through on Twitter, right, you have to say, you know, sort of try and become the main character for the day. And so if you're playing that sort of status game, then that's the objective, particularly in light of, you know, restrictions from Twitter on political advertising. There is no other way to reach people on Twitter as a politician or political organization than retweets and replies and, and stoking controversy. So the platform has sort of incentivized that race to the bottom sure. uh, in, in many ways for candidates. Doing the hard work of really building up a meaningful audience is tough. And so you look for ways to hack that. One of the things that we have to be very careful of with with candidates is our goals on a campaign do not align with the goals of a social media platform. Hmm. The winner of an election is not the person who got the most retweets. <laughs> it's not the person with the most followers on Facebook. You know, those can be correlated, but it's not an indicator. And so we have to remember that even though, you know, we want to be effective at Facebook and Instagram or YouTube, it ultimately has to serve the goals of, of the campaign. And so unfortunately, some candidates can get lost in that fact and I guess over index for being being uh, the main character on Twitter for a day, for example. But you're not necessarily reaching voters. Twitter users tend to lean much more liberal than conservative. So what is the goal of Republican campaigns when they use Twitter? You know, do you think Twitter is important for Republicans? Absolutely. It is important for Republicans because of, of the audiences that are there. There are journalists, opinion makers, influencers, and sort of the, the chattering class, the people who develop narratives. So it's important to make sure that your side of the story is at least present. Otherwise, without a response, it'll seem like the charges or something aren't true. But again, it is not determinative. Voters who are deciding elections are not as active on Twitter as the people who are sort of writing about them minute by minute. It is not real life in that regard, but it is an important part of the narrative. So again, the right way to engage is to be clear on what your objectives are, what you're trying to get out of the platform. So with Twitter, you're trying to shape a narrative, make sure some facts or data points are available to people who are your allies on the platform. You know, with Facebook, you're you're trying to reach voters and aid through their decision making process. And then, you know, other platforms are more appropriate for other demographics and different types of content. But with Twitter, it's uh, sort of an elite class of opinion makers, journalists, uh, influencers, donors, operatives, that sort of thing that we engage with. Given the way that Twitter works, like, can you use it for persuasion or is it better for like riling up the base? It really is more of a narrative development tool for candidates and campaigns and their allies and making sure that relevant facts are there. And, you know, in many ways, the reporting has become downstream of the conversation on Twitter. So if you want to shape reporting, you've got to start doing work on Twitter. Can you speak about like a specific example of like a time that you've made that sort of calculation? A good example would be suppose there's a, a negative story about a candidate coming from a, a mainstream publication. There are sort of two routes you can go. You can, well, I suppose there are three. You could ignore it, which is the wrong thing to do. The second is you could provide your narrative of the facts and correct the record where you think it needs to be adjusted. Or third, 
ridicule it. Um, we've seen this done pretty effectively to sort of blunt the impact of a story. If the uh, headline is so egregious or the, the take is so bad, uh, no one else will touch it for follow-ups, then you've succeeded with, with Twitter. So that's probably a, a good example of, of how that works in combating the, the narrative. When you look at the type of messages that gain a lot of retweets among conservatives, there's a sort of tendency to do sort of owning the libs type stuff. Among liberals, there tends to be a sort of hashtag resistance type approach that infiltrates a lot of those comments. So as a strategist, how do you think through all that? Is the point in some ways for some Republican candidates to approach the highly liberal environment of Twitter so that you can engage in these sort of owning the libs type moments? Owning the libs for a day on Twitter doesn't do much for raising money and banking votes, uh, especially, you know, with the sort of context collapse. You know, if you're a candidate and you have you have a really viral tweet, people don't know what district you're running for or what office you're seeking or anything about your campaign. So. It is a cautionary tale, right? So we've seen this in the influencer space, right? Someone has 2 million followers on Instagram uh, and they can't sell 36 t-shirts to their followers, right? So what you've got to be careful for is what is the game that you're playing? What are your objectives in engaging in a, a medium? And so sure, it's fun for the sugar rush of owning the libs or piling on to the latest snarky thing. And that's, that's fine. And that's... Um, may even be important for sort of getting people energized on your side and, and showing that you're willing to engage in some of that combat, as it were. But you've got to build a good campaign, and that's building an email list, growing your text messaging subscribers, getting people to your website, developing content that people return to over and over again on Facebook and other platforms. So if you could pretend for a moment that I'm a Republican politician or someone thinking about running for a major office. I'm ready to sign you up. <laughs> what is the advice you would give me? Like, where do I start? Yeah. What do I do online? And as part of that, what is the biggest thing that people like me get wrong? A lot of people, when they approach this, they one, want it to be perfect from day one. They want to have a million followers and they want to be creating awesome content and everyone's commenting on it. But it takes time. The secret really to doing this well is, is right in the name. It's social media. So the media part, a lot of people get, right? So posting photos and videos and links. But the social part is where people go wrong because anytime, you know, people are commenting or responding, uh, you want to accept those signals and, and respond to them, reply to comments, answer your DMs, really basic social skills that if we saw you not observing them in a party, we would say that person is a sociopath. And instead, uh, we need to practice social media, not sociopath media. Uh, <laughs> Um, and it's particularly hard for candidates and campaigns because you either not the candidate controlling the voice. So it's not something that people feel comfortable doing or the candidate chooses not to devote the time to engaging with their social audience. And so as part of that, I guess, you know, what do you see as politically the danger of relying on social media too much? I guess both for campaigns and candidates, as well as. I think even more broadly. Well, we've gotten really addicted to using social networks and digital media to grow scale quickly and avoid investing in our own infrastructure. So, you know, one thing that Republicans are having to play catch up on is building email lists for fundraising, right? The left have been doing this for, you know, at least a decade before we really got serious about this. And so the lesson has to be don't build your house on someone else's land because there are a lot of campaigns who would be left out in the cold 
if Facebook or Twitter shut down tomorrow. Mm. I think what we're going to see is a return to sort of the pre-1900s ad-supported model of media where you had actually political parties and candidates supporting things like newspapers. I think we're going to see more of that in the political space where uh, less reliant on the distribution mechanisms of a platform like a Facebook or Twitter or Google where there are maybe not editorial decisions, but certainly distribution decisions that impact uh, how we reach voters that we need to speak to. So we're going to see more investment in infrastructure and owning those audiences because it's really important to understand that you do not own your followers on Facebook or your followers on Twitter. Those are shared with the platform. They're getting something out of it. They're getting to sell ads against your content. You're getting something out of it because they're distributing your content to their users. And so when that marriage stops working, as we're starting to see some frustrations with Facebook around politics, you're left in a bad spot if that was the primary place that you were relying on your your reaching your voters. Well, I enjoyed being the interviewee for a change, and I hope you got some good insights from that conversation. We'll be back soon with more episodes of the Business of Politics show. 